So Galatians chapter 3 is where we're going to be. So if you want to grab your Bible and turn there, if you don't have a Bible, lots of them are available back in the back on the shelves there right by the sound room, or if you go outside those doors, there's some Bibles available out there. Um, we're we're going to walk through Galatians 3, almost the rest of the chapter. We started it last week, um, and, and it's, it's a different, um, <clears throat> I guess I realized it before this morning, but even in first service, it became more obvious to me. It's a different kind of passage to walk through. Um, because it, it, it's actually very, very uh, difficult to understand in spots. Uh, the language isn't super clear, and there's some areas where it's like, eh. so I'll point a couple of those out, and, uh, and uh, we'll have fun with it. <laughs> the, the, the strange part about it is, it really is bad news throughout the entire thing. However, something that God did this week and continues to do is amaze me with how uh, um, persistent he is in my own life and in my own heart how he regularly um, <laughs> speaks to me, not in the audible kind of way, because then I don't think I'd be able to ignore him. But he's very clear in what he's calling me to, and then when I start hearing the same thing from the mouths of other people, it becomes very obvious. So I'll explain a little bit more about that, but I'm thankful for that this morning. I'm thankful that as I stand here in front of you, I know for a fact what it is that God wants me to say. Uh, the, the, the trick really is, am I going to say it? Am I going to back down? Am I going to pursue what I want to say? So you can pray for me as I open my mouth and, and start walking through this. So Galatians has been uh, an interesting study for us. I've loved it. Um, I did not expect to go the direction we've been going. Um, those of you that know my, my, my um, I don't know what the best way to say this is, obsession, I guess. My obsession with being prepared for preaching. I plan way out. And so I had planned way out and thought I knew kind of where the study of Galatians was going to go in each service. And then after the first service, those of you that were here, the first message in the Galatians series, what happened was God made it very clear that the direction we were supposed to go in was the direction of wrestling with the tension that exists when we ask if God loves us and if God likes us. And, and trying to get to the place where it's like, no, let's wrestle with that tension. Let's, let's make sure we understand what it means to be liked or to be accepted by God. And, and every time I look at Galatians right now, it's just jumping off the page and it's there. I mean, Paul's walking through this, this book and he's talking to a church that has just lost its mind. And so Paul is irritated and it's not hard to see. There's a couple of specific areas in Galatians. You can see we talked about one last week when he calls them, you foolish Galatians, or as uh, the Phillips uh, um, Bible says, the Phillips translation says, oh, you dear idiots. Um, any of you use that this week? Okay, good. Probably shouldn't admit to that. <laughs> you can blame Paul. I don't know if we'll buy it. But, um, and what Paul's doing is saying, you, you've, you've just jumped off the ship of the gospel, and you've abandoned it recklessly, and you've run to things that are just going to keep you shackled and chained instead of running towards freedom. And so that, 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 that's just ridiculous in my mind. How could you abandon the gospel? So what is the gospel? What's the message of the gospel? And we defined the gospel as, as the good news that even though we were separated from God because of our sin and helpless to do anything about it ourselves, that God loved us and sent his son who died for us and rose again from the grave, conquering sin and death forever. And so, so Paul's like, when you hear that message, how dare you run from that? What are you thinking? And, and the answer was because this group of people had come into the churches of Galatia and said, yes, that's all fine and good. You can put your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ, but, but then you must also do this and this and this and this. 
And, and Paul says to them, you're not justified. You're not made right with God because you accept Jesus and then you do all these things. That's not what this is. Being justified is, and the real simple definition is, to be treated by God just as if I'd never sinned. It's God's glorious act of, of making a sinner right with himself, not just by pardoning a sinner, but, but by treating him as righteous. And he says, you, you don't do that. You don't get justification by doing something or not doing something. You get justification. You get made right. You're accepted by God because of what Jesus has done for you already. You get accepted by God because what Jesus is continuing to do for you already. And the, to access that finished work of Jesus Christ isn't by doing something to gain it. It's simply faith. It's taking God at his word, that God is good, and God is, is, is just, and, and that God will fulfill all his promises, and that even though God's ways aren't our ways, God can always be trusted. Then, <clears throat> last week we looked at the law where Paul says, listen, you, you don't understand. When you violate the law, you are guilty of the, the law's demands, and that means death. So what is the law? So we walked through it. We talked, started in Exodus chapter 20. It's the Ten Commandments. And so we kind of ran through the Ten Commandments. And if you were with us last week, that was a rough go. But then, okay, once you think, okay, maybe I got the Ten Commandments somewhat figured out, you go to Leviticus and you have 613 other commands that are added to the law. So now your chances are very minimal of even having a moment where you're not breaking one of God's laws. Then you jump forward to the New Testament in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, listen, I know what you're trying to do is control what your hands and your feet do, but what you need to be aware of is this. Sin and breaking the law isn't just your actions, it's your heart. So the one who looks on another and fulfills their lusts thereof, well, they're guilty of adultery. And the one who, who hates a brother or sister, well, you're guilty of murder. And so I think we all agreed when we left last week that not a single one of us could possibly fulfill the law in the way that we're demanded to, which is imperfection, because none of us can possibly perfectly fulfill the law. What Paul does this morning in this, this passage in Galatians 3, he continues to talk about the law. Yay! Aren't you excited? I love the way Paul does it, though. And the way I'm going to break it down is this. We're going to look at, at the three pictures that Paul uses to help us understand what the law is and how the law functions. And then Paul's going to answer the question that is just begging to be asked. Well, if that's what the why in the world would the law exist anyway? Why would God give us the law? What's the point? We'll talk a little bit about that. So follow along with me in Galatians chapter 3. I'll start reading in, in verse 15. And I think you'll, you'll be able, just from the, the reading of the, the passage, you may be able to catch an understanding of what it is that Paul's trying to communicate to the Galatians when he says this, starting in verse 15. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just like no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that's been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Okay, now, now he begins a little bit of a, a parenthetical statement. He sets off to the side. He says, okay, so the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Now, 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 Scripture does not say and to seeds, but Scripture says, or meaning many people, but it says and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. That's a little parenthetical. He's just trying to make sure they understand. When you're talking about Abraham's seed in this, this context, you're not talking about all the descendants of Abraham. You're talking about a single person, Jesus Christ. Then he gets back to his argument in verse 17. So what I mean is this. The law 
which was introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all, you may ask? (laughs) It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred to had come. See, the law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. And before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. But now that this faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. Crystal clear, right? So right out of the gate, I mean, I told you it's a complicated passage of Scripture, but right out of the gate, I'm going to own it. I'm going to be proud about it. Not proud, but proud about it. Verse 19, verse 20. I don't have a clue what that means. I have read and read and read and read, and the worst thing possible that can happen is when you open up one of those, those commentaries, those big honking commentaries that are supposed to explain all of the Bible to everyone, and you open it up, and the first thing the guy says is, there's about a hundred different understandings of this passage. So you read because I want to be responsible with the stewardship that God has given me to teach you what this passage means. So you read through about 45 of them, and at that point you're like, Yeah, there's no way. I don't have a clue what that means. Um, Praise God, it's not like the focal point of the passage, though for you now it might become so. (laughs) So if you know what the end of verse 19 and verse 20 means, well, I praise God for you. You don't have to tell me, it's okay. Um, I'll figure it out eventually, and if not, then I'll get to heaven and be like, oh yeah, there was a verse I couldn't remember, I don't remember what it means. Do you know what I mean? And even then, I won't even care, I don't think, because at that point, I'm going to be completely overwhelmed with heaven and with Jesus and with the things happening there. So it's, it's just different. There's a lot of different options there. Praise God, it's not the point, so I should stop talking about it, shouldn't I? Yeah? All right, good. I just want to see if you guys are paying attention. All right, good. So what, what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to walk through three different pictures of the law, okay? Paul gives us three pictures to try to help the Galatians understand the law in their context. He begins his first one in verses 15 through 18, and he says, it's a will, like your last will and testament. So, so what happened was when God gave Abraham the promise, that was the will, and, and what you're trying to do is, is overcome the will. You're trying to superimpose upon that last will and testament of God your own understanding. And so he says, listen, this is, this is the picture, and maybe I'll put it into our own vernacular. So it would be like you and your spouse excuse me, going to your, to your lawyer and sitting down and, and writing out your last will and testament in which you leave your oldest daughter all of your possessions, your car, your house, your home, anything of value, you leave all of your possessions to your oldest daughter, okay? The, the, the unthinkable happens 
and, and, and tragedy occurs and you're both taken and, and your oldest daughter after, after the, the period of mourning comes and sits before a judge who opens up the envelope that has the last will and testament in it and he begins to read it and he takes it out and in front of everyone, particularly in front of your oldest daughter, he says, and, and we leave all of our possessions, our, our house, our car, our finances, our bank accounts, all of those things, we leave all of that to our oldest daughter. Now, that last will and testament has been signed, it has been dated, it has been documented, it has got the the seal on it, so it's an official document. And the judge reads that official document, declaring that your intention, your desire, was to leave all of your earthly possessions to your oldest daughter. And then he takes that last will and testament, he sticks it in a drawer, and he says, now honey, I know what that said, and you can have all of those things after you enroll in college, graduate with a bachelor's degree, with high honors, then all of that's yours. Can a judge do that? (laughs) The answer is actually no. But today, everybody's like, I don't know, probably. There's loopholes everywhere, aren't there? But no, the answer is actually no, (laughs) right? The answer is no. And what Paul is saying is the same thing. There was a promise that was given to Abraham, and I don't care what comes after that promise. God sealed that promise. And it forever remains. And we'll talk much more about that when we get towards the the end of the chapter. But but that promise of God isn't null and void as a result of the law being introduced. The the promise must must speak for itself. So he says that's the law. It was given to Abraham. God, God was going to give you descendants. God was going to give you a land. And God was going to bless all nations through you, Abraham. That's the promise. The other picture that's used, uh, if you go down towards verse 22, um, that Paul uses the picture of a prison guard. That's a nice picture for the law, isn't it? Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So it's interesting, in verse 22, has locked up, Scripture has locked up, that word is imprisoned, it's uh, enclosed together. Uh, Elsewhere in Scripture, that same word is used to refer to catching fish in a net. So what he's saying is the law has, has captured you and brought you into confinement so that you can't escape. It's held you captive. It's, it's guarded against you. So what in the world is Paul saying here? Why, why is that such a great thing? Why is that a good thing? Why is that a thing at all? Because, because of this. The law can't justify you. The law can't save you. It can't redeem you. It can't rescue you. It's the prison guard. It's watching over you and making sure you remain a captive. Now, usually we would look at those who, who hold us in prison as our enemy. But in this case... It's a great gift to us. Because what that prison guard has done is he has kept us from escaping from prison and running towards a false freedom because he knows there is one who is coming who is going to rescue us and redeem us and ransom us and release us from our prison. So in that, the law becomes our friend. It has held us captive until that moment where faith can come and Jesus can come and we can be rescued It sets us up perfectly for this prison break that would come only through Jesus to bring us our freedom. 
So the law, it, it kind of looks like our last will and testament. It can't be, uh, no, no uh, later event can be superimposed over it. The promise must stand. The law is like a prison guard who, who holds us in place until that time when, when Jesus came so that we could be released and, and escape from our prison because of what Jesus did for us. But he also finishes it with probably the most popular and maybe the most misunderstood in verse 24. He talks about our guardian. Our guardian in verse 24, the, the law was our guardian until Christ came. Um, the King James Version uh, uses uh, schoolmaster. He's our, the law is our teacher. Um, but that kind of muddies the meaning of the word. So let me help paint the picture for you. The, the, the actual Greek word, I'll, I'll use a Greek word, see if I can actually get it out this time. It's pedagogos. Pedagogos. The, the first part, it's a compound word where two words are put together. The first part of the word is, is pedos, which basically, or pedia, which we get our word uh, pediatrics from. It's talking about children. So the first part of the word is child. And ago means to lead or to bring. And so when you take those two together, it means to lead a child, to bring a child. And so when the King James uses the word schoolmaster, we tend to think more like a teacher or a tutor, right? In fact, many versions actually translate this word as a tutor. But, but let, me, let me give you the picture in the, the culture at the time of what actually was happening, because I believe strongly a better translation of that word would be a chaperone. Or uh, I'll use the word strict nanny, and you'll understand in a couple minutes. In, in the classical times, particularly in, um, in wealthy Greek families, um, they would, for their, their, their male children... Uh, ages 6 to 12-ish, uh, they would get a, another man, usually a slave, who would become their guardian, their chaperone, their strict nanny. Okay? And, and, and in this culture, the idea was for this, this fella to um, lead this child to classes, supervise this child, watch over this child, uh, ensure that this child was not getting into trouble. Uh, in fact, many times, uh, this, this, this chaperone was responsible uh, for the discipline of this child. Much of the artwork we found with a picture of this chaperone or this strict nanny, um, the, the dude is standing there with a, a rod or a staff and he is administering the, the corporal punishment to the child, which is much different than capital punishment. In case you're wondering, corporal punishment is physical, capital is, that's the last punishment this kid's getting, Okay. So he was responsible for the corporal punishment. So he would bring about the punishment when this kid would step out of line. So I think sometimes when we think nanny, we think of that, that sweet teenage girl babysitter who all our little boys have gotten a crush on, right? Come on, you, you know that. Um, however, maybe the picture would be helpful. This is much more what this passage is talking about. Okay? Um, Count Olaf from Lemony Snicket's, he's just a messed up, warped dude, but the way he treats the children kind of gives you the idea. However, Miss Trunchbull from Matilda, that's probably the picture, sort of, of what we should think of when we think of what this guardian, this chaperone, this this, 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 this one who's strict nanny who would step in would actually be like. See, when the child steps 
out of bounds, when the child decides to, to, instead of going to school, chase after the animals, instead of doing his chores, not pay attention and, and kind of drift off, instead of following up and, 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 and doing his homework or, or any of the work he was responsible to do for school, what, what the strict nanny would do would, would be the one who would bring about the punishment so you could picture in your mind, especially if you're thinking about them, is, is pointing the finger at this small child somewhere between the age of 6 and 12 and, and explaining the offense and then administering the punishment. And what Paul says is that is what the law is like. It guards over us. It watches us. It directs us. And when we choose to not follow its directions, it brings about great punishment. And if you remember our discussion from last time, that that punishment for not following the law perfectly was death. So, so, so at this point, as the Galatians are hearing Paul explain what the law is like, there has to be this unspoken question like, then why do we have the law? This thing's crazy. And Paul uh, expects that and anticipates that. And he asks that question in verse 19. And he says, why then was the law given at all? And his answer is kind of a surprising one. It was added because of transgressions. Why the law? Because of sin. What does that mean? Well, there's three possibilities, and it, it explains itself elsewhere in other scripture, which we'll talk about as well. But, but the first one is this. It restrains sin. The law is given to hold sin back. Now, now the law doesn't make you righteous, but because the law has consequences, it, it has some level of ability to limit you in your sin, so, so similarly, like a speed limit keeps most of us from speeding too much. That was very carefully worded in case you're keeping score. Most of us, too much. Because there's consequences that come as a result of us breaking the speed limit. That law, the speed limit, actually acts as something that would restrain us from breaking that law. So, so maybe, maybe um, another picture is, is signs near dangerous animals that would keep smart people, anyway, from doing stupid things. Okay, so, so that, that, that is something that restrains us, that, that holds us back. Or even going back, like the threat of a chaperone's punishment. It would restrain us from doing evil. So, so for, for, for us to, to, to see the law and to understand the law and to hear what it's saying, and then to understand the consequences of not following the law's obedience. It should cause us, in those moments where we're ready to make a stupid choice, it should cause us to, to pump the brakes a little bit, and to pull back just a bit. And so why was the law given? It was given for transgressions, to, to restrain sin. Another reason it was given, to, to highlight sin. There is no better diagnostic than the law to give great visibility to our sin. When you hold our actions and our deeds up next to the law, it's very clear because the law is so holy and perfect and righteous. You hold us up next to it, it's like, ooh. ooh. So, so I'll give you a, a picture. I messed it up this morning. It just shows you how great and fashionable I am. So, so there is no greater frustration in my life than getting up in the morning and having black pants on and having to go to my sock drawer and figure out which socks are black and which ones are navy blue. This morning I said royal blue and people are like, that dude's got no idea, does he? Nope. Um, so how can I figure out which sock is navy blue 
and which sock is black. Because honestly, I pick up a pair of navy blue socks and I look at them. I can hold them in the light. doesn't matter how I look at them. They look black. But I know there's a lot of navy blue socks in there, so I'm not real confident. So what do I do? I take the jet black pair of pants that I have, get in the good light, and I just hold the sock up next to it. And it's amazing to me when I put the black sock, I'm like, oh, that's black. I take the navy blue one, I'm like, well, obviously that one's blue. The law is a great diagnostic as we hold up our sinful actions to its pure actions. Or, or the one that I overheard this week, and it's funny, I think I figured out where I heard it when Andy and I were talking after first service. Um, I think we were together. But there was a picture, uh, a commercial, for crest whitening strips or crest whitening toothpaste. And it's the picture of the two ladies at lunch or something like, oh, and the one lady's like, oh my goodness, is my, are my teeth yellow? Now that's a good relationship where you can ask that question, but are my teeth yellow? And she's like, well, I don't know. Have you, have you tried the tissue test? Well, what's that? Well, if you take a tissue and hold it up to your teeth, you'll be able to compare and contrast. And the lady takes a tissue and she, she puts it up to her teeth. And I think it'd be hilarious if the other lady was like, oh, yeah, those, those are yellow. <laughs> um, but she's like, oh dear, my teeth are so yellow. And, and so it's the, the comparison of the contrast, the diagnostic of, of holding something that is a pure white up against something that's not so white. See, see the, the, the law is that. It's a diagnostic tool. It helps us evaluate and be like, oh. Because too often in our lives, our diagnostic tool is simply other people. And so when we compare ourselves to other people, well, then you can always find somebody that makes you look good. I, honestly, you can. And, and <laughs> yeah, I can always find somebody who makes me look like I have small earlobes. It's, it's ridiculous. I have huge earlobes. For those of you who have never noticed, now you're like, oh my word. Um, <laughs> it's a family gift, it's the only one that I was given. But you can always find somebody who's just worse. So, so when our diagnostic is actually the holy law of God, that's the accurate diagnostic. And what it proves to us time and time again in everybody's life, the law reads every single one of us the exact same. A sinner who needs grace. So, so the law, so why the law? Because of transgressions, which... which highlight sin, which restrains sin. And this last one is a head-scratcher. The law increases sin. Huh? How crazy is that? So God would give us the law so that sin would increase? I, I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand how that could possibly be. Well, let me read to you something in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, so you don't think I'm crazy. It says this, The law was brought so that trespasses may increase. How does that work? Well, it works like this. Maybe this is the way to explain it. All of us, every single one of us in this room, we are a fan of God until he starts to meddle in our business. And I think that's true about our culture. They're, they're great fans of God. They're great fans of Jesus Christ. They, 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 back 10 years ago, the big t-shirt in Hollywood was, Jesus is my homeboy. They're great fans of the idea of Jesus, but once they understand that he meddles in their lives, then they want nothing to do with him. And it causes them to react and to respond. It, 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 again, it's a diagnostic type thing where the sin continues to increase. And when sin increases and comes pouring out of us, it causes us to deal with it. 
So a, a, <laughs> a picture of a personal picture. So, so a child, when you catch them in a, I was going to say crime, but that's probably a little overkill. When you catch your child in disobedience and you confront them on it, their initial response is to lie about it. Lie about it. So, so a number of years ago, one of my boys uh, was, uh, <laughs> my father-in-law and I were in one room. There's a room next to us that has a pool table in it. Uh, one of my daughters was taking a nap. One of my boys was in there playing with the pool balls. I mean, he wasn't like, you know, shooting it up or anything, but he was just throwing balls around on the pool table. And so I called him into the room. And so I'm here and my father-in-law's there and he kind of came between us. And I was like, buddy, no more pool. Your sister's sleeping. Okay, dad. And then he walks into the room with the pool table. Buddy, come here. He comes running back out, stands there. He's like, I said no more pool. I'm just going to play in that room, dad. All right, I said no pool. Yes, sir. He goes into the other room. 30 seconds, maybe. The, the, the very distinct sound of a pool ball on slate rolling, rum, 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 getting to a pocket and dropping in. You know that noise? And, and I'm sitting here and I catch my father-in-law's eye across the room and he's just like, it's like, all right, buddy, come here. So my little man runs in. Yeah, dad? I mean, it was like nothing that happened. Didn't I say no playing pool? Yes, sir. Were you playing pool? No, sir. What do you mean you weren't playing pool? I heard the ball. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. There was the spider. I was like, seriously? Come on. He's like, oh, no, no, no. It was a big spider. And meanwhile, my father-in-law has lost his mind on the other side. And I'm trying to keep a straight face. And I said, well, okay, how come when we are told not to do something, it just kind of comes out of us? The law was very explicit and very clear, and yet in the law what has happened is it has brought about this great rebellion in us, and it continues to, to fly out of us. Some of us would think, boy, that's not fair. But what I need to tell you is this this morning. That is a beautiful thing. Because what occurs in the law, not that we sin, <laughs> but what's a beautiful thing is this, when, when we are so dark and so broken and, and, and sin just pours from us and continues to increase, it gives us the opportunity to see plainly our need of grace. See, I read to you Romans 5.20. Let me finish it. It says this, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, so, so while, while the law is active and doing its work, it's bringing about in us a picture time and time again, a reminder that we can't keep the law because we're fallen people. We're shackled by our sin. We're trapped. And every time we turn it around, whether or not we know it, we've broken the law again. I mean, you think about the book of Leviticus, where you walk through Leviticus and the, the overarching story time and time again in the, the book of Leviticus is this, our sin costs a lot. Our sin costs a lot. As the animals were brought to be sacrificed and, and the blood, bloody sacrifice and blood everywhere, the idea is that our sin costs a lot. In fact, our sin was so rampant that even in the book of Leviticus, they had a, a God had prescribed a sacrifice for people to bring just in case. Because they would sin so 
ignorantly and, and unexpectedly and without knowing so many times because the law is so pure that on any given day you would simply break it just by getting up in the morning. And I got to tell you, living in the time of Leviticus had to be a depressing and dark time to sit there and watch the people as they headed down your street with their sacrifices every day, time and time again, time and time again, time and time again. It had to have become so overwhelmingly depressing and discouraging. But there's an awesome word in verse 19, and it's this, until. See, verse 19 says this, why was the law given? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. Who is that seed? Remember, we talked about it already back in verse 16. That seed is not Abraham's descendants because it can't be Abraham. It can't be Moses. It can't be David. It can't be one of the prophets because every single one of them failed in one way or another. The seed is Jesus and Jesus alone. And so, so it says, until that seed, until that promised one came, until God showed up, the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what has brought us freedom and acceptance in God's eyes. Why? God doesn't accept us because of what we've done. God doesn't accept us because of what we don't do. God accepts us because of what has been done for us and what is being done for us. God accepts us because of his unbreakable promise. Now, I'm I'm a little long here, but bear with me just for a couple seconds. The problem that we have as a people living in this country at this moment in these days with our history is that when we say that, that our promise from God is unbreakable, We have a difficult time wrapping our heads around that because every single one of us has had our hearts broken by somebody who didn't keep their word. Every single one of us. And so it's hard for us to trust a promise because all you can do with a promise is trust it. You can't earn it. And you can't guarantee that it happens. I mean, it really depends upon the one who's promising, doesn't it? So we need to be able to trust that God has said he loves you and God accepts you and that God will rejoice over you. We need to be able to accept that that God demonstrated that love in and through Jesus Christ. We need to understand that just like the law is something that you and I can't help but break, God's promise is something he cannot break. Because he's God. So, so I need to paint this picture for you in closing. Um, as, as, as God made his promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, there, there's, there's a, a covenant signed and sealed that, that is something that you and I don't understand because it's not the way it works in our culture anymore. If you want to enter into a covenant relationship with somebody, it comes down to your signature on a piece of paper in front of a justice of the peace, in front of a judge, in front of a notary republic, or something like that, right? But in this day, what happens is this. Genesis 15, God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, come on outside. Come on outside. I want to show you something because Abraham's whining and crying. Where's, where's the fulfillment of your promise? You promised that I haven't seen it yet. And so Abraham goes outside with God and God says, okay, I want you to look up to the sky, the dark night sky, and you're going to see all of the stars. I want you to count those stars if you can. 
And when you count those stars, what I want you to know is that's how many descendants you're going to have. And I'm going to lead you into this land. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to bless all nations through you and your descendants. It's going to be this wonderful thing. And, and Abraham says, how am I supposed to believe you? And God says to Abraham something that you and I do not understand. Go, get a cow, get a goat, get a ram, a dove, and a pigeon. Now for you and I, we hear that and we're like, Okay, barbecue, right? God says, because remember, Abraham just said, how do I know? And he says, go get, go get a cow, get a goat, get a ram, get a dove, get a pigeon. And Abraham, okay, he hears that, he's gone. I mean, he goes into autopilot at that moment because this is not unheard of for him. This is something he's familiar with. And so he goes and he gets the, the cow, the goat, the ram, the dove, and the pigeon, and he brings them back. And he separates the dove and the pigeon. He doesn't, he doesn't take care of the dove and pigeon this way, but he takes the, the cow, goat, and ram, and he splits them in half. okay. And then he takes one half of the animals and he puts them on one side of the road. He takes the other half of the animals and he puts it on the other side of the road. Now, for you and I, we're like, I think Abraham has lost his mind. But in that day, the way a covenant agreement was entered into was just that. You would take the animals, you would split them in two, put one on one side of the road, one on the other side of the road, and then the participants who were entering into the covenant agreement together would walk through the pieces of the animal. It was a very visual and, and quite graphic, actually, way of making a promise to, to, to everybody who saw and everybody who was a part that, listen, I'm going to keep my word. Okay, if I don't, then I should be split in two like these animals. I deserve death like these animals. I would rather die than break my promise. And so the two parties of the covenant would walk through the pieces and the covenant would be considered a, a done deal. As you read through Genesis 15, the thing you cannot miss is that Abraham never walks through those pieces. God does. The smoking fire pot and the, the flame, they pass through the middle of the pieces, forever sealing the promise of God to Abraham. God himself is saying, Man, I, I, if I do not keep my word, I am no better than these. So God's promise soars to a different level than any other promise that we've been given. It's interesting that in the middle of that, God says to Abraham, listen, I, I know it's going to look a little iffy for a while. Your, your, your descendants are going to enter into captivity and it's, it's not going to look like I'm keeping my word, but I promise you I will bring you back into your land and I won't leave you and I'm not going to forsake you and I will keep my word that all of the world, all nations will be blessed through your lineage. And what Paul is saying is that promise was fulfilled the moment Jesus Christ was born. So, so something that I, I just need to share with you, which I think is hilarious. Um, I'm slow. I talked about this at the beginning. I'm slow to learn. God has to beat me up a few times before I finally figure it out. 
And as I'm walking through this, it's like, man, Paul is getting so repetitive in, in, in Galatians. I mean, he's, it's the same message every week. You're not accepted because of you. You're accepted because of him. You're not accepted because of you. You're accepted because of him. And it's like, I don't want to stop ringing that bell because that's the bell that God keeps ringing. But what is it for us? What does that mean for us? How does it fit in with us? And, and as I'm, I'm reflecting on it and praying through it and looking at the service structure for today and, and praying about it, it's like, you know, every service, it seems that what we do is our, our and, and lack of a better word, it's the Uniontown Liturgy. Okay, we, we finish the preaching and, and I say, okay, let's pray. And we pray and then we sing a, a pretty, we'll call it mellow worship song where it's just a reflective time for us. And, and that's all right and good and perfect. And I, I'm not saying that's a bad thing at all. I'm just saying that that's not what we should do every time. Because as you read through God's word, when God's people were reminded of God's promise, it wasn't a somber moment. It was a celebration. And so as I'm wrestling with that in my head and trying to figure out what that means for our service, I'm actually on an airplane doing that yesterday. I land and Jeremy had had texted me and said, hey, call me when you can. I want to talk about service tomorrow. And so I called him from the airport yesterday. He's like, hey, just to throw something at you. What do you think about ending the service on a more upbeat way? Funny you should say that, Jeremy. And it was, I kept saying it. And he kept talking to explain it. I don't know if he, cell phone and an airport. So I don't know if you heard me. I kept going, that's perfect. That's perfect. That's perfect. Because what we need to understand is this. God's promises will never let us down. The word of God is clear. Through his promise, we've experienced a grace that can only be found in Jesus Christ. And again, like I started the service, I know it doesn't take us long to start thinking that way and for that that little demon to show up in our hearts being like, oh, but wait, 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 think about your Thursday. Your Thursday wasn't good. You lost your temper. And Satan continues to, to bring about accusations that, that, that bring home, okay, you're a consistent failure in your life. You, you failed here. You failed here. Because the devil wants to discourage you and to tell you that you can never be accepted by God because of your failures. But the gospel says that in the midst of our failures, God loved us and sent his son. The gospel tells us that you're accepted by God because of God's promise of life in Jesus Christ. I mean, we, we, we shrink back in fear because of a great lie that Satan has, has, has kind of woven into the church. And I, I'm going to say this sensitively and carefully, but this is a lie every single one of us has either heard, said, or believed if we've been in church for a period of time. And it's this. When you die and stand before God, your entire life will be played on a screen That is a lie from Satan himself. Because when you die and stand before God, the only reason you're in his presence is because of Jesus' finished work on the cross. So the only thing that's going to stand before God is God's going to say, there you are, and quite honestly, you should fall on your face and say, I'm worthless. But God's going to say, you are, but my son covered you in his blood. So come on in. The gospel says we're accepted by God because of God's promise of life in Jesus Christ. That's why Romans 8 says what it says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. See, folks, in Christ... We're free. We're no longer shackled. 
We're no longer chained. We're no longer stuck in the cell of sin. We've been set free. And so this morning, what we're going to do is two things. One, let me encourage you as you walk out into our lobby and our chalkboard back there, the, the, the logo for the series is up there. Uh, freedom, no other gospel. But what we'd ask you to do is this. As you contemplate what it is that Christ has freed you from, write it on the board. What have you been set free from because Jesus Christ died for you? Write that on the board. Let's celebrate that together. And then another way that we're going to apply this celebration thing for us is we're going to end our service not in the more introspective way, but in a much more celebratory way. Because we serve a God whose promise is faithful. We serve a God whose promise will come true, not because of anything good we've done, but because he is God. So let's celebrate that well together, shall we? Father God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your love for us. I thank you for your desire for us. God, I thank you that in Jesus Christ we've been made whole and complete. God, I thank you that that even though there are many opportunities for us to to be remorseful and sorrowful over the way that we've behaved or our lack of obedience or the fact that we haven't trusted you, God, I thank you that even in those moments there are opportunities for us to lean into the gospel and remember that, that our acceptance in your eyes isn't based on our perfection, but it's based on Jesus' perfection. So Lord, today as we reflect on that perfection and on the finished work of Christ, may we celebrate the fact that we're no longer bound But God, we're forever free because of what Jesus Christ did for us. For it's in his good and precious name I pray. Amen.